Before we get started with today's episode, I have the exciting privilege of letting you know early bird tickets for the 2020 The Breath in the Clay Creative Arts Gathering are live this Friday at thebreathintheclay.com. This event will be held March 20th through 22nd in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Go to thebreathintheclay.com for details. Andrew Peterson is an award-winning singer-songwriter and author. The second book in his Wingfeather saga, North or Be Eaten, won the Christie Award for Young Adult Fiction, and the fourth, The Warden and the Wolf King, won World Magazine's Children's Book of the Year in 2015. In 2008, Andrew founded a creative arts community called The Rabbit Room, which led to a yearly conference, countless concerts and symposiums, and Rabbit Room Press, which has published 30 books to date. In this episode, I sit down with Andrew to talk about his latest book, Adorning the Dark, which is a collection of personal stories from his journey through the intersections of songwriting, storytelling, and vocation, along with offering nuts and bolts explorations of this great mystery of creativity. You can find out more about Andrew Peterson and his book, Adorning the Dark, in the show notes of this episode. Be sure to listen to the end of the episode for an opportunity to win a free copy of Adorning the Dark. This is my interview with singer-songwriter and author, Andrew Peterson. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on the Makers and Mystics podcast. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Nice to meet you, man. Yeah, I feel like in some ways, uh, you and I are running in parallel universes here. So it's wonderful to meet another storyteller, musician, uh, and someone who's building community around art and faith. I appreciate your work. Well, thank you so much. There's so many different directions we could take the conversation, but I know that you have a brand new book called Adorning the Dark which is a book on community calling and the mystery of making. I'd love to to dive right into the book and tell me some about this. Yeah, well, it was about a five-year... It's funny, I didn't realize it took me five years until I was uh, editing the thing, and I went back and was kind of like piecing together chapters, and th- things that I was describing in there, I, I was like, oh, wow, I, I started it talking about the making of one album, and then about halfway through, I'm talking about a completely different record. And then by the end of it, I was talking about another one. And so I, the the genesis of the idea came because I was going into the studio for an album called Light for the Lost Boy. I think that was the one. And uh, this is years ago. And I was I had a little bit of writer's block. Like I just didn't have... I never really go into the studio with a bunch of extra songs. Um, there's usually this white hot panic that comes and that that's what, you know stirs the the juices and uh and so i thought as an uh just as an exercise in writing i would document kind of the process i would journal what was going on in my mind in the process thinking maybe that'll just get me writing and so after about a year later i went back and looked at that journal and thought i wonder if this would be helpful to other people to see what's going on in somebody's brain like in real time when they're trying to make something and uh 
And it's very it, kind of embarrassing, actually. It's like a little, like so confessional that I was, I was a little sheepish about sharing it with people. But, you know, just the voices in your head that tell you, you don't have any business doing this. Who do you think you are? All this stuff. And uh, so one thing led to another. And I was like, well, why don't I just write a book that delves into a lot of the, a lot of the um, process of the, of the creative work? Yeah. And that's interesting to hear someone say who has the span of a career that you've had. And you've been writing music for what? Is it uh, close to 20 years now? Is that correct? Uh, more than 20 years, yeah. And so uh, this uh, interior battle doesn't go away, does it? <laughs> oh, no. Uh-uh. No, this, it's, uh-huh. it, it's shocking to me. Like, uh, I'm, I have just as many, um, I, I feel like I know just as little about songwriting as I did when I was starting this thing. And, uh, and I don't think that's true, but you feel like that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think the the best thing that you have going for you when you sit down and you're staring at the blank page, which is just a, you know, it's a difficult place to be in, whether you're a pastor and you're writing sermons or you're a, a painter looking at a blank canvas, whatever it may be. It's, it's you're you're always starting at zero. You're always starting at nothing. And um, the one the best thing you have is evidence in the past that you always started with zero. And but look, I wrote a song that time and that time and that time and that time. So the only thing you know for sure is that you have to go to the blank page. You have to be obedient to that part of it. You know, you have to have the courage to step into that that unknown. And, uh, and then you look back when it's done and you're like, how did that happen exactly? Somehow, mm-hmm. somehow there's a new thing under the sun. And, uh, and, uh, I talk in the book about how I, I, I don't know if you feel this way, but I get a little bit of amnesia, uh, like where I feel like after, like there's this little tiny window of time after a song is written or a story is finished, or you kind of like, like find something that you don't hate where like the, the veil of time opens and you see the wheels within wheels and you're like, this is how songwriting works. I found it. I found it. And then it just slams shut and you're completely cut off from it again. And you're like, well, I know that there's something out there, but I don't, I don't, I still don't know how it works. So that, yeah, there's a, I feel hopefully the book will be a little bit of like commiseration for people that they'll, they'll, they'll not feel alone in that. Right. And of course, even though you draw heavily from your discipline as a songwriter, the book that you've written really applies to artists working in any discipline. Yes. For, so like I, so I've written novels too. And so one of the, one of the questions that I, I get sometimes, um, is, you know, was it ever, how is it different writing songs or writing albums versus writing uh, a book? And there are some, some, some real differences between the two, but the, there's way more overlap than there is difference. Like there's way more, uh, similarity because, which is why, you know, when I, when I give talks on the creative process, I tend to talk in broad strokes, like it's principle stuff because the principles apply to whatever discipline you happen to be in. So yeah, that, that, that was the hope that like the book, like I, I try to reiterate it a lot in the book is that this, the, these principles apply, if you apply them and they may not lead to a really great living, <laughs> but, they, but I think they can lead to a really great, great life Yeah, that like, whether or not you're, you're a professional musician or whatever, learning to pay attention to the world the God made and learning to keep your eyes peeled, learning to humbly um, approach creative work. Um, all of these things kind of like have the potential to, to shape us into something better. Well, one of the phrases that you use in the book is serving the work. 
And this kind of harkens back in my mind to some of Madeline Ingalls' thoughts and walking on water. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by serving the work. Yeah, well, Madeline Langle, um, her book, Walking on Water, like you said, it, I think everybody should read it. Um, it's a, It was a marvelous, it's beautifully written, but it was also really helpful to me as a young man who just moved to Nashville and was trying to find his way and, and trying to articulate to myself my own calling. You know what I mean? Like trying to understand like, what is it that I'm trying to do here exactly? And she, it's, it's really helpful. Like, um, and so one of the things she talks about is this idea of serving the work by which she means that like, if, if this, if the creative process is a, a mystery and it is like, and, and if this, and part of the reason it's a mystery is because it's, it's a, uh, you know, there's a profoundly spiritual thing playing itself out, like an incarnational spiritual image bearing thing that is happening that we can't, we don't really know what's behind it because it's like, uh, it's the image of God in us playing itself out. And that's always going to be mysterious. We're, we're, we're just scratching the surface of what that means in some ways. And so, so why should we approach writing a story or a song or painting a painting or writing a sermon even uh, with a swagger? You know, why should we go into it with this idea that like, I've got this agenda, I'm going to bully this thing into existence and I'm going to make it become what I want it to become. Um, and she talks a lot in her book about this idea that there, there is this sense when you're making something, um, there's a sense that the thing you're making wants to become something. And I so that. at that point you can either choose to ignore it or become a midwife. Like you can either, you can either say, I know I'm going to make a robot and I'm going to build this thing exactly like I want, or I'm going to be a midwife and I'm going to give birth to something that's going to have its own personality um, and its own uh, touch of the image of God in it. And so, so that's one part of the, the, of, of what I love about Madeline Lingle's point, but there's also this idea of serving the work is one of the best ways of serving your audience right? Because it's not just servanthood to the thing that you're making, but in the spirit of like Christ-like humility, the thing you're making, the process, this whole thing is a way of learning to lay down your life for the sake of another, right? So the question is, how do you use your, the gifting that you've been given to love people? Not to draw attention to yourself, not to, not to express yourself, but how do you, how do you use this work to serve others? So servanthood is a, big part of what she's talking about. And then I kind of grab it and I, I basically stole every good idea from her. To put in the book. <laughs> as, as we should, right? <laughs> as we should. Well, you, you mentioned the phrase uh, serving the audience, and that's actually where I was going to go next with the question, because you, you have a chapter in the book that goes into serving the audience. And I'm really interested in this idea. And you spoke into this briefly a minute ago, but particularly with songwriters or with artists in faith communities, and especially in worship music uh, specific, there is a real symbiosis, a real interaction between audience and the songwriter, because they're often singing lyrics that were written to be sung by a congregation, right? right. And so when we talk about serving the audience, the artist in me always kind of comes and says, well, how do we if there is a balance to it, or how, how do we balance serving the audience and remaining authentic to that work that wants to be born in us, like you mentioned? I wonder if you could speak to what serving the audience means to you. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Well, first thing that popped into my head was uh, this anecdote from Yo-Yo Ma. I read a, a, an article about how he had um, stage fright for a long time 
which is so surprising because he's right. you know, <laughs> the man. Uh, but he but uh, he dealt with like stage anxiety, and and he said that he realized one day that when he had a dinner party at his house, he was never nervous. When he had friends over, he was never nervous because he knew that his job was to be hospitable to the people who'd come to his house. And he said that he just made that sh- subtle shift in his mind that he would thought, okay, when when I'm doing a concert, I'm the host at a dinner party, and it's my job to just love the people that show up at my house and, and to uh, serve them with my music, with whatever gifting that I have. So I love that picture because it becomes about, like I said earlier, your gifting, your, your music, whatever it may be, is a way of loving. And I think it's going to grow best in that garden. But then the, like, the question about, as a performer, if you're doing a concert and you're feeling like, well, I'm writing these songs, um, I'm, you're not, it's not necessarily about letting the audience dictate what it is that you are going to be doing. Mm-hmm. You're still giving them a gift, right? And so the, the example that I talk about in the book is on the Christmas tour that we do. We've done this Christmas tour for like 20 years. And the second half of the show, um, all these songwriters and the musicians, we come out and we play through these Christmas songs. But the first half of the show is a chance to introduce the audience to all of these singer-songwriters. And so it's, it's always been an in-the-round and lots of different songs. They, they don't have to do Christmas songs. It's different every night. And I remember early on, sometimes we had too many artists on the tour and there would be like seven people doing two rounds, you know, so it was like an hour and a half first half of the show. And I could see the audience getting restless and I could see them kind of, because it was, you know, a lot of people show up, if you're not into acoustic singer songwriter music, maybe you showed up at this Christmas show wanting Bing Crosby. Right. And instead you're sitting through 90 minutes of, of dudes, you know, crying on the stage about their feelings. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, (laughs) and so the, uh, but there was another part of me that I remember thinking, this is like serving them their vegetables. Mm-hmm. Like, like sometimes when people like, it's not just the dinner party. You want you want them to enjoy the food, but you also want to give them something healthy, something that's going to be good for them. Sometimes right. you uh, you you balance out the uh, the candy with some vegetables, and so I think that's another a way of looking at it is that there are going to be. It's almost like a tithe of the evening is going to be mm-hmm. vegetables, something that you may not want, but it might stretch you in a way that you need. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's one way to think about it. Sure. And I also just, I, I, you know, a little little pet peeves in there. I think there's a footnote in the book about about my uh, annoyance. When when I see a young songwriter not say thank you after a song, you know, mm-hmm. the, the audience is clapping and you just you're tuning your guitar, and I just want to be like, no, look at them. They don't have to be here. Yeah, there's this thing called Netflix, you know, <laughs> like so they they didn't have to come to this show. They right. don't owe this to you. So like just this very active remembering that it is a profound grace mm-hmm. that anybody gives you their attention mm-hmm. in a, in a, such an attention. Uh, Hung uh, like a, an attention, not starved. I don't know what the word is, but like the, the everything's vying for our attention. So for somebody to sit and listen to your song for three minutes is a massive gift. Mm-hmm. And so remembering that there's this like you know it's a there's a conversation that's happening that there's a way of loving people and 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 that it is a way for them to love you back. Um, it just kind of makes the whole thing better. Absolutely. You said something when you were speaking just now too that that really resonated with me when you made the comparison of the vegetables and and these these healthy foods I, I think sometimes perhaps that's the role of the artist is is to help reveal things that are beneficial to the community but maybe we didn't know that this was something that we needed to focus on yeah I think that's a that's a big part of what artists can do like what is it Mary Oliver says pay attention be astonished tell about it 
I love it. Yes, and that's kind of the <laughs> that's kind of the uh, the role as, of a poet, mm-hmm. and and I think that that's the thing is like uh, we're we're all going to see different things in a different way. Like I, I remember I was just telling this story to somebody the other day that my friend Jason Gray is another songwriter. Um, we watched a movie. It was called The Master, P.T. Anderson movie, and we watched it. We rented it one night and hated it. We watched the movie and I remember when it was over. He was he was actually stay, crashing at our place at the time. And and uh, when it was over, we were like, "Well, that was a downer. Um, <laughs> what a lame movie. Good night, good night, man. See you in the morning." And like, and the next morning, I was cooking eggs, and he was like, "How about that movie?" Right? And I was like, "Yeah. What was the deal with that movie?" And after about thirty minutes of talking about the movie, we both agreed that it was a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> like because he had seen things that I hadn't seen, and I had seen things that yeah. he hadn't seen, and then the sum of them together changed our whole paradigm, Absolutely. right? It helped us to understand things. So I think that's one of, one of the great blessings of community. Yeah. Um, but a community of artists that we're, we're always aiming each other's cameras in new places. Absolutely. And I think I read in your book, Adorning the Dark, about your first encounter with Bob Dylan's music and how you'd listened to this one particular record like 10 times and hated it. Uh-huh. And, and then finally, uh, the genius of the album kind of fell on you. Yeah, totally. It was, and it was that, and that was a matter of just kind of doing my homework. But the the idea was just that we have to take our craft seriously and and learn discernment. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm a singer songwriter in America, and everybody says that Bob Dylan is one of the great song, he just won the you know like the Nobel Prize for Pete's sake, right? <laughs> and I don't like Bob Dylan. Maybe I'm the one with the problem. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like how many times have we been to an art museum and you've seen a painting that you just hated, right? Uh, but then you read the artist statement or you hear the docent walk by and they're giving the tour and they say, look at this, look at this, look at this. And all of a sudden the painting opens itself up to you. So I think in our culture that we don't have a good, uh, a habit of humbling ourselves enough to let a work speak to us. I've only ever bought one painting, like, like spent like real money on one painting in my life. And it was this painting that used to hang in the back of our church and it, the church, uh, you know, had you know, like the stations of the cross around the, the sides uh, along the walls. So everything in the church was this was some kind of part of the gospel story. But the painting at the very back of the church, like the thing that the pastor would have seen while he was preaching, was this sort of abstract painting of two figures. And they were very vague, very simple colors. And it was just this arresting picture. And I would look at it every Sunday and I'd be like, what is that picture? And I, I love it and I don't know why. And the next Sunday I would come and I would look at it and be like, what is that picture? And eventually the church calendar moved us closer and closer to Easter. And I walked in on Easter Sunday and I looked at the picture and I was thinking about my favorite moment in the whole gospel story, which is at the resurrection when Mary sees mm-hmm. what she thinks is the gardener. Mm-hmm. but it's actually the resurrected Christ and he says her name. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the painting and I realized the name of the painting was the gardener. Wow. And that it was a paint. The two figures were Mary seeing Jesus in the mist. And I just burst into tears. Wow. Like I remember standing there just like crying because the painting had been slowly over the course of weeks and weeks and weeks unfolding itself to me. And uh, that moment of connection when you finally go, Oh, that's the thing. That's what it's about. Oh, is a wonderful thing. So it's hanging in our house. It's over our fire, fireplace now. I had to track down who painted it, and I've decided that I'm not going to tell anybody about the painting. I'm, I've just like, I, if they ask me what it's about, I'm going to be like, what do you think it's about? Yeah, and, and let the thing do its work. So there's this, you know, it, it's a way of. Uh, 
I'm trying to be better about that, about like paying attention, letting letting a work of art unfold itself to me, and and believing that there is going to be some payoff at the end of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm jumping out of my seat here because that <laughs> that's such a rich conversation that I think it's important for this time. And I and as you're sitting here talking, I'm just thinking like how culturally and perhaps particularly in faith communities we're inclined toward the familiar. We're inclined toward things that we've already figured out. And sometimes our first response to something we don't understand, whether it's a painting like that or the Bob Dylan song that we're talking about, it's to reject it or to stand away from it. But I think it's a good practice. Uh, like we, we keep using the word attention to, to learn how to give attention. And sometimes like Mary with Jesus, whom she thought was the gardener, uh, sometimes our first glance is not the full picture, or sometimes mm-hmm. our, our first encounter with something is not always the fullness of, of what it is. And I, I think that's a great lesson for us all to learn, even when we're engaging art and also giving room to the artist and to the songwriter to explore some unfamiliar territory. I think so too. And the whole time you were talking, I kept thinking about the Bible. It's mm-hmm. like what, I, like the Bible is like the prime example to me of something that every time you come back to it, this living thing is speaking to you in a different way, That's you know? Um, and I, I, uh, there, there have been plenty of times that, that, you know, we have read some portion of scripture that we just didn't get and rejected it exactly like what you're talking about mm-hmm. instead of approaching it humbly and saying, speak to me, help me, help me to understand. And eventually, you know, we all know what it's like to read a verse and be like, how have I missed that? Right. You know, like I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've read the Bible my whole life and I, I've never noticed this little detail or I've never understood this parable quite that way before because my, my heart wasn't ready for it. There's this great George MacDonald, who's an author that I love. He, he said that the, Parables are like streams across a path mm. that like sometimes you can't drink from it until you reach that part of the path. Mm-hmm. So you, you'll, the, the p- parables there and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. And then maybe when you're 44, you'll, you will have lived enough life and fallen and been broken in the right way. So that when you read that parable, it opens itself up to you and you go, Oh, that's what he means. How, how have I missed it? Mm-hmm. So it's just a, like I said in the, when we were talking earlier that, one of the things I try to talk about in the book is that the these the writing life is just a, a rich life, you know, mm-hmm. like learning learning to to pay attention to the world, to approach things with the, that way. And I'm far from having mastered it, but there have been things that I have just kind of learned on accident along the way that have I've looked up and been like, wow, what a gift it is to uh, like, like for example, like I don't know if you're you're like this, but when I'm writing, I don't usually write songs until, like I said, I'm ready to make an album. But I can I, there's a shift in my mind. Mm-hmm. When I'm like, uh-oh, I got to write a bunch of songs. I, I know that I'm going to be looking at every moment of the day differently. Right. Like you're constantly going, where's the song? Where's the song? Where's the song? Um, and I just happen to believe that the songs are all around us all the time. Yeah. We just, we just have to shift, that, shift our brain into that gear. That's good. That's good. It's a, it's a different level of attention and intentionality when you begin thinking creatively in that sense. I think so. Yeah. Well, I know we're primarily talking about your new book, Adorning the Dark, but you're also a prolific young adult fiction writer as well. So I'd love to give a little bit of airtime to talk about your Wingfeather series. What can you tell me about that? 
Yeah. Um, well, by the way, I can see, I've been looking at your bookshelf behind you. Like the people at home can't see this, but I'm seeing the Lemony Snicket books back there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I'm seeing Oz. That's right. And I see Kathleen Norris. Yes. Oh yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm I'm admiring your bookshelf. Uh, so yeah, I, I was, um, what do you want to know? Do you just want to know what the books are about? Sure. So let's start there. Just tell me a little about the elevator pitch of the storyline. Wow, that's that's uh, why'd you have to ask that question? That'll that's be like a long elevator yeah. ride. Then we're gonna go up to the 18th floor. No, right? <laughs> uh, it's funny. We're, we've been in the in the long process of making an animated film out of the out of the first book. Mm-hmm. Um, about we're about three and a half or four years into the process, and it's really fun. But you know, whittling it all down to be able to like elevator pitch a, a book has been especially hard for me the, sure. as the author. I'm too close to the whole thing, you know. But it's it's basically just three kids who are growing up in this imaginary world called Air We Are in a little town on the edge of the dark sea of darkness. And uh, Janner, the main character, and his siblings, uh, they're kind of... Janner thinks that his life is just kind of boring and drab and he's stuck and uh, he's a waste of space. And then... Um, suddenly he finds himself at the center of a great mystery that is going to change not only his life, but the whole world. Mm-hmm. And so I just described almost every book that has ever been written. Um, <laughs> the meta-narrative, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's kind of hard to like zero in on it. But, sure. you know, there's like the, the one of the most fun parts about the, the writing world building process was this, you know, I had just read the Lemony Snicket books, you know, so there's a little bit of like whimsy to it. You know, the, the scariest creature in the forest is a toothy cow. It's this carnivorous fanged cow, which led to, oh yeah, I get to make up all the animals in this world. And so there's a creaturepedia that is like a, an appendix to the whole series that is full of all the weird critters that live in the world. And there's these creatures called the fangs of dang that invaded the country. And so basically it was like, uh, I just wanted to tell an epic story, like having mm-hmm. read Harry Potter as they were coming out and loving them, read the Narnia books to my kids when they were, as soon as they were old enough, I read those to them, my kids. And just in the same way that like, as a songwriter, I remember encountering Rich Mullins's music and, um, and I was a kind of a nominal Christian at the time, but Rich's music was the thing that made me realize that Jesus was real. And I remember asking God when I was 19, you know, if you'll let me, that's what I want to do with my music. Like, please let me write those kinds of songs. And then I remember feeling something very similar when I read the Narnia books to my kids. I'd read them when I was a kid, but I think those books are best experienced not as a kid reading them, and not even as a kid with your parent reading them, your, their best experience as the parent reading them to your kids. <laughs> and so that's where the, like the real, like, where the rubber meets the road for those books. And uh, so I was just wrecked. And I remember afterwards being like, God, you know that book I've always wanted to write? Like, if you will let me write a book that will make somebody feel a little glimpse of what this book just made me feel, that's what I want to do. So I, I wanted to tell a story that was an epic fantasy that mm-hmm. would uh, mm-hmm. my goal is usually just to make people cry so there you that's, go <laughs> that's, the, that's the idea well you made me think of something here and i'm gonna push against my own statement earlier when we were talking about culturally we're kind of inclined to accept the familiar but at the same time when you talk about these fantastical creatures whether it's fanged cows or like some of the crazy creatures that lewis has in narnia there's also something about us that we're drawn to the unfamiliar we're 
we're drawn to the fantastical. We kind of want to approach some of these uh, imaginative ideas at the same time. It's a dance between the familiar and the unfamiliar. Well, the thing that makes me think about Chesterton, uh, G.K. Chesterton talks about in Orthodoxy how one of the beautiful things about fairy tales is that he was like in a fairy tale, like you experience apples as, say, uh, orange, mm-hmm. so that when you come back out of Elfland and you're back in our world, you'll remember how amazing it is that they're red. Uh-huh. Right? That's good. That's really good. So the idea is that like you, you invite people into this other world to show them how crazy it is. But the best kind of fantasy, I think, is the kind that doesn't just give you an escape from our world. It's the kind of fantasy that like when you come back to you, the real world, you see it with better eyes. Like you, you actually able to look around and be like, oh, this place is actually pretty amazing. Uh Um, And alligators are real, you know, like uh, the (laughs) cows are scary enough without fangs, (laughs) I think. (laughs) So, so, you know, the hope is that like when somebody finishes this, a, a good fantasy like Lord of the Rings, like I actually look at the world we live in now as a more beautiful place because of that book. Right. Mm, um, so, so there's a balance between the two. The yeah. unfamiliar actually makes us love the familiar better. I love that. That's well said. Well, I want to ask you one last question. And I know that aside from your songwriting and from your book writing, another characteristic that's very important to your life is the community that you've been building with the Rabbit Room and some of these other things like Hutchmoot. So, I'm really curious to know. Why is community important to you as an artist? Yeah. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that if it wasn't for a healthy community of Christians who were also, um, you know, had similar callings around me that, that, uh, I, I wouldn't still be playing music. Like I'm, I'm certain that I would have given up a long time ago. And I think, you know, like the rabbit room began, because I had I went to Oxford, England, visited the Eagle and Child, which was one of the pubs that the Inklings used to hang out in, Lewis and Tolkien and their buddies. And, you know, as I thought about them getting together in a pub to share their stories with each other, it reminded me of Nashville. It reminded me of my community. I was like, you know what, this is not probably as you know, stodgy and academic as we imagine it was. I bet it was just a bunch of dudes laughing together. <laughs> right. um, and the stories were like secondary. The main thing was the friendships, right? And so uh, I had this conviction that like, like we're not anywhere near as smart as those guys, but there was some overlap. And I also began to realize that the the best thing about a community of artists is not the art, it's the community, mm-hmm. right? So the... the uh, it, like the friendships, the relationships that are being born, that's the part that's eternal. Like in some sense, the work that we do will make it into the new creation. I don't know exactly how that works, but but there's no doubt in my mind that the relationships, the friendships, the people we will be feasting with at the wedding supper of the Lamb, that's mm-hmm. the thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so art has this uh, this tendency to nourish community. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we say is art nourishes community and community nourishes art, that there's this beautiful symbiosis between the fact that uh, if you are a person who is called to make a record or be a painter, whatever it is, when you begin to share those works with your community, you're, you're loving them 
with the stuff. But you also look up and realize five years later that you have a bunch of friends you didn't have before. Right. And that, that your, your, your work has encouraged them to get busy. Right. And that there's this kind of like ongoing flourishing that tends to happen. But then the other side of it is, is that the art actually is improved. Uh-huh. Right. It's not just the community that grows, but like you're a better artist for having shared this part of your life with these other artists. So uh-huh. like it's wonderful the way the things kind of, they kind of burgeons, you know. And so, uh, my, you know, and my theory is that's part of why we have the Lord of the Rings and the Narnia books is because they, they exemplified what I'm talking about. So the rabbit room for, began as that kind of an idea where it's like, we're not just going to, it's not ju- just art and community. It's also art and community um, underneath the Lordship of Christ. Mm-hmm. So the idea is it's like, you know, there's plenty of artistic communities out there that have flourished um, that weren't Christians at all, right? So we have this evidence that that uh, that it works. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it it uh, is strongest. Like, like, I think what makes the rabbit room unique is that we have a high view of Scripture. We really care about the gospel. But also, we're, we're interested in the way that God is telling his own story through the arts. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, as an, uh, somebody who's, you know, always been kind of the nerdy kid in school to, you know, moving to Nashville and kind of being on the fringes of things, you know, like like I've, I've never been like a worship leadery guy and never had huge success. So I was always like in that little middle space where it's like, well, I'm a Christian, but I also love James Taylor, you know, like I, like as far as my the kind of songs that I write. Um and so I've always had a heart for those those um, people who feel called to that kind of specific work, when the, where there's not a whole industry that's there to support them. Right. And so part of the rabbit room's goal is to like, h- how do we encourage that kind of good work, and mm-hmm. how do we draw attention to that kind of work that's being done? That's wonderful. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate the work you're doing in your songwriting, your books, and in your community building, and I look forward to seeing what's next. Thank you, man. Thanks, Stephen. Okay, friends. As I promised at the beginning of the show, we have an opportunity for you to get your hands on a free copy of Andrew's book, Adorning the Dark. Here's what you do. Head over to iTunes and leave us a kind review about the podcast. Tell the world how Makers and Mystics has helped or inspired you along your creative journey. Then copy and paste your review in an email along with your name and address and send that along to info at makersandmystics.com. This offer is limited to 10 copies of Andrew's book and expires two weeks from the publishing of this episode. So be sure to write your review today and secure your copy of Adorning the Dark. You can follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and see the show notes of this episode for ticket links to the Breath in the Clay Creative Arts Gathering. We'll see you again next week.